Hello and welcome to the Southside Church podcast. For more information about Southside Church located in Cape Town, South Africa, visit southsidechurch.co.za. We hope that you enjoy the message. Hello. Over the last two weeks, we've had two great preachers uh, preaching into the community of Southside Church. Uh, We had my good friend Jared Smith preaching. And then last week, one of our own kind of team in our house here, Daniel Leach. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't heard those two messages, to go back to those podcasts and um, you can hear the powerful messages they delivered. During that two-week period, I got some time to reflect and really felt God speaking to me about how we navigate acknowledging His presence in the most unlikely places of our lives. And as I was processing that thought, I was reminded of the journey of a man called Jacob in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is on a kind of a mundane journey in his everyday life. And during his mundane travels, he has to spend the night camping before getting up in the morning and continuing. And during this period in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob has a dream while he's sleeping. And it tells us in Genesis chapter 28 verses 16, that when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. How often do we experience life this way? Often God seems absent or we assume he's not in certain places and spaces within our lives. Just like Jacob, we're like, surely the Lord is in this place and I just was not aware of it. And often it's areas like the painful or messy or shameful parts of our lives in which we aren't aware of the presence of God. Yet God promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. That means it's not God that's absent. It might be us that are overlooking his presence because of distorted perceptions. Distorted perceptions. A perfect example can be seen in Mark's gospel. Jesus had finished feeding 5,000 people and sent his disciples on ahead of him by boat while he prayed on a nearby mountain. And while he was praying, he saw the disciples straining to paddle in the boat because of the strong winds. So Jesus walked upon the water toward them to assist. And in Mark chapter 6, 49 to 50, it says, but when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. The disciples in this moment perceived their savior to be a threat. They didn't see their savior in their presence. They saw an enemy which was coming to take them out. Imagine if Jesus hadn't in that moment said, fear not, it is I. Imagine if they hadn't eventually realized it was Jesus. They may have killed themselves by jumping overboard or resisting his help to rescue them. And I wonder how often we reject God's help in our lives because we assume based on our perceptions that he is not present in our places of pain or mess or shame. How many people have perhaps given up on God altogether because of these inaccurate perceptions? Thomas Keating in his book Intimacy with God describes how our consciousness can be likened to a river with our thoughts passing like boats along its surface. The surface of the river represents our ordinary psychological level of awareness. But a river also has its depths and so does our awareness. Beneath the ordinary psychological level of awareness, there is a spiritual level of awareness where our intellect and will are functioning in their proper way in a spiritual 
manner. You and I have the potential to tap into a heightened awareness of the presence of God in the most unexpected places of our lives. And one of the very practical ways we can do this is through praise and worship, engaging with God in praise and worship. There's one point in history documented in the pages of the Old Testament where the king of Israel had requested a prophet to prophesy guidance for Israel because they were busy going to war, but they were facing a drought and they needed some divine guidance. So they called on the prophet of the time and that prophet was Elisha. It's interesting that in 2 Kings chapter 3 verse 15, it says that Elijah said, but now bring me a musician. Bring me a musician. Elisha's first response before operating in the power of God to prophesy was, bring me a musician. And it's interesting because, of course, this musician would have started playing. And then it goes on in that verse to say, then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord. And then, of course, he went on to prophesy in the power of God. Elijah here used music to develop a higher consciousness of God's presence in order to prophesy. And like Elijah, you and I don't necessarily usher in God's presence through our worship. We push into his existing presence with praise. And when we are in his presence, it then changes our perception. And when we have a change in our perception, it means we experience and respond out of his victory in our present problems. In Elijah's prophecy, he told the people that they should begin digging ditches because the rains would come and the ditches would then provide the place for the water to kind of be held. They were called to act in expectation of God's victorious provision when Elijah gained heaven's perspective through the power of music. And this brings me to point number one about praise. Praise repositions us from victims seeing a problem to victors seeing our Savior. The psalmist writes in Psalm 121 verse 1 to 2, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We often will start by looking with consciousness that is unaware of God's presence at our problems. But as we lift our focus in praise, we deepen our consciousness of the presence of God and we reframe our pain in the context of our risen Lord and Savior. We remember the battle may be hard when we're looking at the problem, but we then lift our gaze in praise and understand that the war has already been won. Praise repositions us from victims seeing a problem to victors seeing our Savior. John Stott, the well-known theologian, wrote about something he had read of a young man who found a $5 bill on the street and who, from that time on, never lifted his eyes when walking. In the course of years, he accumulated 29,516 buttons, 54,172 pins, 12 cents, a bent back, and a miserly disposition. But think what he lost, John Stott goes on to write. He could not see the radiance of the sunlight, the sheen of the stars, the smile on the face of his friends, or the blossoms of springtime, for his eyes were in the gutter. And when I read that, I recognized in my own life that often I may be unaware of God's presence in unfavorable places because I'm so focused on my problem and I'm not lifting my eyes toward him in praise. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, the apostle Paul writes to the church and says, In the midst of everything, be always giving thanks, for this is God's perfect plan for you in Christ Jesus. In the midst of everything, even the unfavorable conditions and circumstances you might face. And the scripture says, give thanks in these situations. Give And the reason why we need to give thanks, give praise, is because often praise is not our natural response to our situations. It doesn't say in that scripture, respond with thanksgiving. It has to be given when it's not our first natural response. You see, praise is an intentional action, not merely a reaction. But often our praise to God is a reaction determined by how worthy we feel or how good we assume God's been to us. But if the degree of our praise to God is determined by the convenience of our circumstances, it's a symptom of unbelief. If I can't praise him in the places of my pain, it might be because I'm basing his worth on what he does for me. Or I'm assuming he's absent and indifferent to my suffering. I am declaring that I don't believe what he did on the cross was enough because my current circumstances aren't nice. Or I am declaring that he isn't sovereign in my circumstances because I don't have all the answers. Yet we must acknowledge that at the heart of praise and worship, it is surrender. It's surrender. Let's remember that first of all, praise repositions us from victims to victors. Secondly, praise is an intentional action, not merely a reaction. And being in action brings us to point number three. Praise is practical. When we praise God, it is practical. And if the heart of worship is surrender, then one of the practical acts of my praise is seen in raising my hands, surrendering. I give up my rights. I give up the need to understand to the sovereignty of God, whose ways are not my ways and whose thoughts are not my thoughts. And maybe as I'm saying this to you, like, yeah, Grant, well, you know, praise is very personal and it's not my personality to raise my hands. Well, let me point a gun at you and see if your personality is still an issue. Yeah, but Grant, I raise my hands because I'm afraid if there's a gun pointing toward me. The book of Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we really don't have any excuse for at least to some degree expressing our praise and worship in some physical, practical manifestation. In Psalm 95 verse 2 it says, let us come before his presence with a song of thanksgiving. Now the word thanksgiving there, according to the Strong's, is derived from the verb yada. It means to hold out the hand, an extension of the hand, especially to revere or worship with extended hands. It is to thank and praise God with one's hands extended. You see, As part of my practical response in praise, raising my hands reflects first of all my victory in Christ and secondly my surrender to his sovereignty. In Psalm 47 verse 1 it says, Come everyone, clap your hands, shout to God with joyful praise. There's the practical act of shouting declarations of God's goodness. There's the practical act of clapping my hands and raising them before him. The well-known American pastor and author Rick Warren said, as long as you're on earth, your spirit can only be where your body is. And we could relate that concept to our practical praise. When I raise my hands, in some ways I'm raising my spirit before the Father. 
When I'm declaring his praise practically, I'm in some way allowing my spirit to declare the goodness of God. So let us remember, number one, praise repositions us from victims to victors. Praise is an intentional action, not merely a reaction. And number three, praise is practical. And that brings me to point number four. Praise comes at a price. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. King David in the scriptures said, I will not offer to the Lord my God sacrifices that have cost me nothing. For some of us, one of the costs we might make in our worship is the courageously intentional act of showing some even slight form of physical engagement in our praise and thanksgiving. But the fact that worship costs us also speaks into the fact that When we don't feel like it, we can still choose to do it as a willing sacrifice because no matter how unworthy we feel or how many questions we have for God in our lack of understanding, it does not take away from his worth. He remains the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end the savior of our souls. And so when we lift our gaze to him in praise, we reposition ourselves from victims to victors. We choosing to intentionally act and not merely react when the world and our lives sit in our favor. We praise practically in response to his lordship and we pay a price by giving him praise even when we don't feel like it. And when we engage with this amazing God in our praise like this, it connects us to his power in a very personal way. Like we've said, God is omnipresent and so we simply need to push into his presence with our praise and there we connect to his power in a personal way. Like Elijah who prophesied in power as the harpist began to play or like the records of the apostle Paul who experienced the gates of bondage break as he was praising God in a prison cell. And there was a moment in history from the Old Testament where God's people, the Israelites, were called to take the land of Canaan, the promised land. However, their first obstacle was the city of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6 verse 1. It was an unconquerable walled city. Excavations reveal that its fortifications featured a stone wall 11 feet high and 14 feet wide. I know so often in our personal journeys, we believe the promises of God, we're trusting our futures are good, and then we suddenly come up against these obstacles that seem unconquerable. We face them and we're like, where does my help come from? Does it come from the grandeur and the might of the mountains? We're looking down at a problem and God wants us to lift our gaze to his victory in praise. And so here are these people and they're in this position facing the walls of Jericho, yet God gives them a strategy and he says to them, you're going to walk around the walls seven times and after the seventh time, you're going to shout. 
In my mind, that's crazy. Yet we do understand that God's word tells us that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, but they're powerful in bringing down strongholds. Here God was giving them the plan and they had to follow through in obedience. I know those moments in my life where I'm facing what looks like a Jericho. My first reaction is often to figure out how I'm going to fix the problem. I'm not like Paul who begins praising in the prison or shouting in the midst of my Jericho walls. I'm the guy that begins protesting. I'm like, why is this happening, God? Why did you let this happen? In fact, my praise sometimes ceases in the midst of my problems and it turns into a protest. Right here, God's people could have begun to protest. God, you brought us so far. Now you make us face an obstacle. We're not ready. We don't have the equipment to break through these walls. And then God says, on the seventh day, I want you to shout. And as I reflected on that act of shouting, I was reminded of Psalm 47 verse 1 that says, Come everyone, clap your hands, shout to God with joyful praise. And we read that these Israelites obeyed the instruction God gave them. This almost ridiculous idea that they march quietly seven times and after the seventh time they shout. I can imagine in that moment they might have started uh, kind of shouting and looking at each other while they opened their mouths quietly and awkwardly hoping something was going to happen. I can imagine the leaders of Israel saying, a little louder, guys, a little louder. And they kind of, uh, and, and they're like, this doesn't make sense. Why would I be praising in a prison? Why would I be praising in the midst of this fortified wall that we could never penetrate? And they carry on going, uh, where it doesn't feel right, where their feelings would rather be protesting. And suddenly as they keep consistent in their shouts, they begin to hear the walls crumble. And that kind of questioning about their shouting is lost in the midst of the excitement that something's happening. The fortified city is crumbling. It looks like maybe they're hearing the sound of victory coming. And suddenly their shouts become louder. They start seeing the walls crack and hearing the crumbling. And, and they motivated even more. And the shouts get louder and more confident. And as each brick falls, as portions of walls begin to collapse, they shout are raised higher and higher because their perception of a victorious God increases. They go from being the victims to victorious. And very often I wonder how many walls in our personal lives are still standing that would have come crashing down a long time ago had we not kept looking at the mountain in front of us, but lifted our gaze to the Messiah over us. I wonder how many breakthroughs are waiting for us to convert our protest into praise. And so I want you to reflect on a question for your personal life. What problem in your personal life do you need to stop protesting about and start praising God in? I pray that as you choose to convert your protesting over your problems into praise as you lift your focus to your Savior, that you would see the walls of the Jerichos you face come crumbling down. And as you stand in your victory, that you would echo the words of Jacob. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was simply not aware of it.